You're listening to Pastor Jesse Miller of City Lights Church. Let me briefly recap. We've kind of, we're kind of coming to the end of our series that we started a little bit ago. Um, when, what are you searching for? We feel, I feel like a lot of times in life we are searching for something more. And we talked how that can really be found and summed up when we really find the presence of God, the love of God. And out of that flows different things. Uh, I know my dad was here last week and apparently it was awesome. Um, so I heard a lot of yeses. So I'm resigning this week and my dad is going to be taking over. <laughs> no, I'm kidding. Um, no, I'm really, I was so happy to hear that I can go to the other side of the world and just realize City Lights is still doing its thing. It's still, so thank you to all my leaders here. Uh, I already thanked my dad for giving the word and I'm glad it was encouraging and, and challenging last week to you. But he spoke last week on the identity, having, correct? Your identity in Christ, knowing who you are in Christ. That is the heart of this. I can not, I can stop searching for things. I can stop searching for something when I have found the love of God and I know the presence of God in me and out of me flows who I am now in Christ. So we talked about this dis- disciplines. We talked about the, our whole City Lights catchphrase, worship. We talked about how we flow in worship out of the love of God, out of the presence and intimacy with God. We also talked about we're in kind of this worship grow area. We're going to look at that over the next week or two. And then we're going to talk about serving a little bit. But growing, we talked about Scripture and how reading the Scripture is food for our souls. And it can only really be enjoyed when, we, when it comes through a place of intimacy and love of the Father. Make sense? So we're all recapped a little bit. And today... I want to talk about prayer. Martin mentioned prayer. He, we did not discuss any of this, but mentioned prayer. And before I do, though, have you ever, um, have you ever watched a movie um, and there was an ending that you did not expect at all? Like you just did not see that coming, right? Every story has this potential for either tragedy or triumph, um, you just kind of expect it. So if you're watching a Hallmark movie, you know what you're getting at the end, right? You're getting some kind of romantic triumph. If you're watching some other movie, you, you don't know. If it's M. Night Shyamalan, The, the, uh, the Sixth Sense, you're just waiting for a twist. Like somebody's dead already, I can tell. Some, something bad's going to happen. Sorry if I ruined that movie that's 20 years old for somebody. <laughs> but, um, but there's in every story, in every one of our lives, we have this potential all the time for triumph or tragedy. And I was actually, last week, I got to do one of the things off my bucket list. I got to go to Shakespeare's Globe Theater in London and experience a play. Uh, I sat and I watched Pericles. And my wife, we FaceTimed afterwards, and she's like, how was it? And she's, I said, it was one of the best things I've ever done. I literally almost cried. <laughs> it's true. So I'm at the play, Pericles. And I had read half of it. Uh, about a month ago before I left, and I never got the chance to finish it. So I go, and the theater, it's all lit by candlelight. Everything's done the way it would have been done a couple hundred years ago, and it's a very small theater. And I got this really cool seat for cheap. They were kind of the cheap seats, but they were awesome to me. There was just six of us sitting with the musicians and some of the actors right above the stage like this. So we sat there and watched the entire play like this. It was great. It was great. So we're sitting there with the musicians behind me. They're playing their little... Whatever they played in the 1600s. I don't even know what the names of the instruments were. They were crazy. And I'm sitting there, and so the first half of the play, I knew what was happening because I had already read this. And then when I got to the part that I didn't know, I'm like, oh, no. 
this is going to be really bad. I know where this is going. I was convinced that I knew where the story was going. It's Shakespeare. It's either a tragedy or a comedy. And comedy doesn't mean laugh out loud. It means like it might be a good ending. So I'm like, this is going to be a tragedy. This is going to be a mess. And so it, the story develops, and we get to this part in the play, and I'm sitting there watching, and it's this old man, Pericles, and he's old, and there's this daughter, and he doesn't know it's his daughter. And she says something, and I'm thinking, just tell him, just tell him, because he thinks she's dead. And when they begin to communicate and the truth is discovered, I'm sitting there and my lip is quivering. I'm like, look, it's so beautiful. Because what I expected didn't happen. It ended beautifully. It was a, it was, you should read the story. Well, actually, just, just watch it if there's a movie of it. But Pericles, it ends so happily. And there's a triumph and everybody's happily ever after. And I was so excited. So happy when I left that when I told Ash, she said, how was it? She's there with my parents. I'm like, it was beautiful. One of the best things I ever experienced. She's like, you're ridiculous. Like, you're ridiculous. It wasn't what I expected. And we all have this in our lives where, even in our walk with God, where our stories can really become tragedies or triumphs. They really can. And I want to look at a passage of, of Scripture in the Old Testament uh, we're talking about prayer, and this is a passage that's not usually associated with prayer, but I want to look at it this morning. I'm going to kind of recap most of it for you. It's Judges chapter 13 through 16. It's the story of Samson. Who's heard the story of Samson before? You guys know Samson and Delilah. Hey there, Delilah. It's not the same Delilah, just so you know. So the story of Samson is really an interesting one. We're going to, we're going to start in chapter 16, but let me, let me recap briefly what's happened before I get into that. So Israel, this is before their kings, before they had kings. They're God's chosen people, and Israel keeps getting into the same cycle that you and I often find ourselves in. We need God, we cry out for God, God sends a deliverer, or he redeems us, he delivers us, and then we're happy and worshipable for a while, and then we fall back into self, and then we fall back into sin, and we see this phrase over and over in the book of Judges, they did what was right in their own eyes. So we often fall into that cycle where we need God, he delivers us, we're worshipful, and then we fall back into self again. And then what do we do? God, we need you. Send us a deliverer. And here we have the story of Samson where he is what's called one of the judges. God is sending judges to the people of Israel to deliver them from persecution that they're under. And he is the last one of 12 different judges that we see in the book of Judges. And so here's, here's a little bit of the story. So this angel shows up to Samson's parents, says you're going to have a son, and he needs to be a Nazarite of the Nazarite vow, which he's going to be set apart to do God's work. He cannot cut his hair, he cannot drink wine, and he cannot touch things that are dead. So if somebody's been dead or a thing's been dead, he cannot be around it. That is the vow of a Nazarite. And he, the angel even says to Samson's mom, while in the womb, you are not to touch any of those things. You are to be a Nazarite, so he is a Nazarite from birth. So that's the beginning. So Samson is born, and the first thing we see Samson do is he goes into Philistine area. He goes into the, not the people of God, and he sees a woman, and he says to his dad, I want you to get her for me. I want somebody who's not of God's people to be my wife. And so did you guys know that? He was married before 
Delilah. And there's a tragic story that happens there, and God uses Samson to kill people. And we see this phrase that the Spirit of the Lord comes on Samson, and then he destroys everybody. Samson just goes nuts. That's when we see God's Spirit, he just goes crazy. And so then we, we see that he's supposed to be a Nazarite. And throughout the first few chapters here, we see him kill a lion, and then later he goes back and touches the dead carcass. We see him getting drunk a lot, so he's touching the wine, and then we know the story of Samson and Delilah. Finally, he sees this other woman. Before this, he's with a prostitute, by the way, and then he sees Delilah, who's also a Philistine, and he says, I want to be with her, and so she's constantly trying to trick him to find out the source of his strength. And finally, after all these attempts, where he basically just kept telling her lies, he finally tells her the truth. It's the one last vow that he has not broken was his hair. So he tells her the truth of this. And what happens? Let's, let's read in chapter 16, starting in verse 20. So she cuts his hair. And she, said, and she said, the Philistines are upon you, Samson. And he awoke from his sleep and he said, I will go out as at other times, and shake myself free. But he did not know that the Lord had left him. And the Philistines seized him and gouged out his eyes, and he brought him down to Gaza and bound him with bronze shackles. And he ground, and he ground at the mill in the prison, and his hair, and, but his hair on his head began to grow again after it had been shaved. Now the Lord of the Philistines gathered to offer great sacrifices to Dagon, their God, and to rejoice. And they said, Our God has given Samson, our enemy, into our hand. And when the people saw him, they praised their God. For they said, Our God has given our enemy into our hand and the ravager of our country, who has killed many of us. And when their hearts were merry, they said, Call Samson that he may entertain us. So they called Samson out of the prison, and he, ent- and he entertained them. And they made him stand between the pillars. And Samson said to the young men who held him by the hand, Let me feel the pillars on which the house rests, that I may lean against them. Now the house was full of men and women, and all the lords of the Philistines were there. And on the roof there was about 3,000 men and women who looked on while Samson entertained. Then Samson called to the Lord and he said, O Lord God, please remember me, and please strengthen me only this once, O God that I may be avenged on the Philistines for my two eyes. And Samson grasped the two middle pillars on which the house rested, and he leaned his weight against them, his right on the one and his left on the other. And Samson said, let me die with the Philistines. Then he bowed with his, all his strength, and the house fell upon the lords and upon all the people who were in it. So the dead whom he killed at his death were more than those whom he had killed during his life. Then his brothers and all his family came down and he took him and brought him up to bury him between Zorah and Eshtol in the tomb of Manoah and his father. And he had judged Israel 20 years. To me, this is one of the saddest passages in Scripture. Very, this is a tragedy, if you haven't picked it up. You have a man who is set aside, called by God to deliver Israel. And from the very beginning of his story, we see him, the Holy Spirit, comes on him and does great works and kills a ton of men. We see in the passage before this that he killed a thousand men with a jawbone of a donkey. That is a ridiculous fight scene in any movie. A thousand men. Like, you ever watch a movie where one guy's taking out 20 and it feels, okay, this is a little long. Let's, let's be realistic. A thousand men with one jawbone is what Samson did. 
God has always, he set aside Samson for a purpose to deliver Israel, and this guy is constantly just doing his own thing. He's still being used by God to deliver Israel, but the entire time he's doing silly things. And finally we see him here where he's, his eyes are gouged out, and he's entertaining the Philistines, and we have thousands of people in this one building, and Samson gives his first prayer that we see in the entire book. We don't see him pray anything else. Here's a man who's supposed to be used by God, and he's not praying for anything else. He's basically like, kind of like this crazy adrenaline superhero. The Holy Spirit comes on, and he goes nuts. And then he's back to normal Samson, basically. He's just with prostitutes, full of lust, full of pride. And when all that's taken away from him, when all of his vows have been broken, he's standing there, and what's his prayer? What, what, what is his prayer? Oh, Lord Remember me and please strengthen me only this once, O God, that I may be avenged on the Philistines for my eyes. His one prayer was a prayer of pride. He knew who his God was. He knew the source of strength came from the vows that he had taken and the promise of God on his life. But his one prayer wasn't so, God, deliver Israel again. God, show your might. Prove that you're awesome. Avenge me because they took my eyes. That's his one prayer. And then he follows it up with this phrase that he didn't have to say. He did not have to say in verse 30, let me die with the Philistines. That's his prayer. God, avenge me because they took my eyes and let me die. Let me die. Samson was a man who loved the power of God without loving the presence of God. His prayers were all about these assumptions and personal gain rather than intimacy or service to to God or to Israel. He was a judge of Israel, and he helped them, but basically by default because the power of God was on him. He wasn't interested in Israel. He wasn't interested in loving the God, to keeping the vows. He was interested in personal gain and lust and greed, and he didn't have relationship. So because he didn't have relationship, he was not praying and seeking the face of God. And when he does pray, it's about himself, and he felt like he should die. When you and I pray, if, 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 if I know, if Samson knew who he was because of God, if he had intimacy with the Father, if he was praying out of relationship and not out of desire, if he was praying in that motive, he would not have said, and let me die. Because here's a guy who kills a thousand people with a jawbone, and he wants to break down an entire building, this massive building with thousands of people. You don't think he could have said, yeah, and spare me in this, somehow let me come out of here and help deliver Israel a little longer? You can ask for those things when you know the Father. You know how great he is. We sang the waves and winds still know his name. Samson, if he would have had intimacy with the Father, if he would have known the love of God for him and the plan and the purpose over him, he could have prayed that prayer. There's a direct, uh, John Piper says this in Desiring God. He says, there is a direct correlation between not knowing Jesus well and not asking much from him. A failure in our prayer life is generally a failure to know God, to know Jesus. When I know Jesus, when I have intimacy with the Father, I can ask for him, from him, whatever I want. Because I know his heart for me. I know that he's for me and not against me. He's not there to persecute and torment me. He's a good father. And when I have a good relationship with him, my prayer life is constant. 
It's there all the time, and I can ask for big things. Samson asked for the big things, but for himself and with the wrong heart, with the wrong perspective. We know that his heart, in his heart, we can ask for life and not death. We can ask for real life and deliverance from our Father because we have that. It, it shocks me that we have these four chapters here of the life of Samson, and we don't see him ask God anything except this. I feel like often we, we, in, we can do this with our prayer life as well, that we turn to God in prayer the moment we need help and salvation or rescue, and we kind of have this already defeated mentality, like, God, please do this, and I'll sacrifice this if you do this. Like, he's this genie that works on a certain amount of wishes, you know, like, yeah, I only get three shots at this. That's not our God either. He gives unlimitedly. He loves to pour his gifts on us. He loves to empower us. We see in Matthew, Jesus gives us this example to pray. And I want to look at it briefly. When you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners, that they may be seen by others. Truly I say to you that they have received their reward. But when you pray, go into your room and shut the door and pray to the Father who is in secret. Your Father who sees in secret will reward you. And when you pray, do not heap upon empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think that they will be heard for their many words. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask. Pray then like this, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. We know the rest. I want to stop there. The very way that Jesus teaches us to pray is we don't pray out of tradition. We don't pray for attention. We pray first off. The first thing we see in the heart of Christ when he shows us the example to pray is let's worship you. You're beautiful. You're in heaven. Hallowed be your name. And then the next thing we see come out of Christ's mouth is your kingdom come, your will be done. And then he asks for provision. He asks for food. He asks for forgiveness. He asks for strength. But there's a heart in prayer that that Christ prayed that desires God to be glorified, that he's loved and adored, and that whatever he desires would come and be in our lives. I wonder if Samson would have prayed when he's blinded and he's between the two pillars, God, whatever you want me to do, do that right now through me. Whatever it is. Rescue me, kill me, whatever you want from me. But hallowed be your name, I love you. What would, what would have happened in that moment? What would that have looked like? I, I, I don't know. Scripture doesn't tell us. It's, it's, it's a Bible of what happened, not what ifs. <laughs> but I wonder, we have to learn from Samson here. Another prayer that I want to point out to us is in the garden, we see Jesus the night before he was betrayed. He's in, he's in the garden and he prays and we see that scripture shows us that he prayed in this intense, agonizing prayer. Not my will, but your will. If it's possible, take this cup from me. And he prays drops of blood. And I would say, and I've said this before, that Jesus cries this drops of blood. He's in deep agony, not because he's afraid of the cross. He's not afraid of pain. It's for the joy set before him he endured the cross. Jesus, there's martyrs who have taken bigger pains than the the cross, honestly. And they went through it with joy. 
Christ did the same thing on the cross. It doesn't mean it felt good. That's not what I'm saying. He suffered, but he wasn't afraid of the cross. What he was in tears and agony about is sin on him and separation from the Father. Separating, sin separating him from the presence of God. That's the reason for the, the agony. It's the, the sin, the cup being poured on him. For the first time, he would feel the separation from the Father. He would feel, feel the separation so that you and I don't have to. You and I don't have to feel that separation. He would take the cup of wrath against sin so that you and I would not. He would lose intimacy with the Father so that you and I could gain it. You and I don't have to be like Samson or even like Christ in the garden where there's a separation of intimacy. We can pray with intimacy. We can pray with joy and relationship. All through the life of Christ, we see the Son of God dedicating time in prayer. His ministry starts and ends with prayer. Every aspect of his life is filled with these moments of listening and speaking to the Father. If God in the person of Christ, if Christ who is God, valued prayer so much, how come we don't? Prayer is our primary way to experience relationship with the Father. It is. Prayer is our way to communicate. Martin said it wonderfully. It hasn't changed in 2,000 years. We don't need a cell phone or a new system of things. We simply pray in relationship with the Father. I've realized something that that the more in love with God I am, the more I value prayer. The more time, the easier it is for me to pray. Pray. I've been through many seasons where I am in love more with myself than I am with God, where I'm not experiencing Him. But in the seasons that I experience Him, I can pray for hours and not, not be done at all. I'm just good. The moments it's about me, I got my like ten point checklist. I'm like halfway through and I'm like asleep again. Like, you, you, let's be honest. You guys know what I'm talking about, right? Yeah. Where sometimes prayer is just a lot easier than other times. And I would challenge us to say it's easier when we when we experience His love deeper, when we realize the place and the the why we pray. We don't pray for attention. We don't pray for religious obligation. We pray because of presence. We pray because of intimacy. We want the Father's will. We want the Father's heart in us. We are, we are in Christ, judges on the earth. We are here to set the captives free. We are here to deliver people. We are here to be his ambassadors. We are here to be a royal priesthood. But those things only really happen when they're birthed out of relationship and love of the Father. We can only really, really pray when we know why we pray, how we are to pray. You, are you guys, is this making sense this morning? When I know his love for me, when I know that it's not to fulfill some kind of checklist, but to really enjoy him, then I can pray for a very, very long time. And I can see God move. Our prayers need to be birthed out of intimacy and not some wish list. It can't be a wish list. Because then I won't really value the Father. I won't really have an experience with Him. It's the prodigal son. Dad, give me this. Okay, thanks. See you later. But when he needed a rescue, all of a sudden he was back. I don't want to be that guy who constantly like, give me my checklist. All right, see you later. Uh, I got a new checklist for you. Like, what are you going to do? Like, a good father still gives good gifts, right? He still used Samson. That's a beautiful thing of Samson. God still used him to deliver Israel. They had 20 years of rest. 
20 years of peace because of Samson. God still uses brokenness. He'll still use you even if your heart is in the wrong place. That's a good God, right? (laughs) That should be encouraging for somebody. He still will use you even if your heart is all jacked up. Samson, man, drunk, lust, pride. That guy was a jerk, (laughs) just being honest. That was, that was, never mind, I was going to make a joke that only a few people would get, so I won't say it. So anyway, he, he, he was a jock, basically. He, Samson was like, he was literally like Hercules walking around with God's hand was on him and he was a jerk. <laughs> and God used him to deliver people, but it was still a tragedy. A lot of people name their children biblical names, right? Have you ever met a Samson? You have met one Samson. That's a, like that's one of those names. Like if the story would have been different at the end, everybody would be my son Samson. He's he's the real biblical hero. He is Hercules. That's that's my son. I'm not naming my kid Samson because this is ugly. This is the guy was a mess. There's certain names that you just don't name your kids because the it turned into a tragedy. But we all want John and Peter and Paul and. Like the, the great heroes of our faith. Each one of us, because we are in Christ, you are called to be a redeemed Samson to the world around you. Around you. you are called to be a redeemed Samson. You are called to deliver God's people, to experience the power of God in real miraculous sort of ways. Hopefully not killing thousands of people with a jawbone, that'd be weird. But there's a real sort of miracle and a deliverance that can come through the strength of Christ, the Spirit on us. We are people now the Spirit lives in us. Samson just had this like quick dose of the Spirit. It would come on him and then leave. Come on him and then leave. The Spirit resides in us now. And I want to encourage us this morning that when we go in prayer, when we, when we spend time praying, that when you, like Paul says, pray without ceasing, he can only do that if he realizes the love of the Father and the Spirit in him. So everywhere he's going, he's saying, your kingdom your worship, your will. Give me this because I need it. Thank you, God. Living in that place, that's when you can pray without ceasing. You and I are called to be a Samson that redeems people and knows the heart of the Father, that values intimacy with his pre- in his presence. I want to have the power that Samson had, but I also want the relationship that he lacked. God is calling us to enjoy the power of his presence, of prayer, and of a spirit-filled life. It has to flow, though, out of a place of love. Some of us, this series has been, what are you searching for? And I feel like there are some of us who are constantly searching for a way to defend ourselves, to build our platform, to make ourselves of value. Maybe it's, you know, maybe it's a career decision. You're defending it to your parents, Maybe it's a spouse and you're constantly defending that decision to whoever. Or you're just in life trying to defend yourself at work. You're trying to say, this is why I'm important. This is why I have value. This is why you should keep me. This is why I need job security. I don't know what it is. But so often we become like Samson and we're constantly defending ourselves. Constantly doing things for our pride and for ourselves and building ourselves up. And we never find joy in his, in his presence. Samson was a man always looking for things for himself, and I don't see a man of joy at all in this story. I don't see a man at peace or at rest. 
I see a man working and trying and looking for different things to give him delight and joy, but he never found joy. And he was a man who was supposed to be set apart, be distinct for the presence of God. I would say some of us have been searching for a way to defend or to revenge ourselves when God is telling us to stop searching for might and start resting in his covenant. Start resting in his promise for who you are. I hope that encourages you this morning. I hope that when we go in prayer that we realize what it's supposed to be birthed out out of. And I hope you realize that you are, if you're in Christ, you're a person of covenant. You're a person of promise. Like Samson was a person of a covenant for the Nazarite vow. We're people of covenant in Christ, the blood of Christ. We are redeemed and we have a purpose and a mission. Let's, Let's live out of that, can we? Let's stand, let's pray. Jesus, we, we, we love you and we thank you. We thank you that we can come directly to you and ask. We can ask in faith. We can ask knowing that you're a good father who gives good things to us. And God, we ask for might. We ask for the ability to change the city, to, to defend the broken and to uh, see lives changed because of the gospel, to declare you in our workplaces and at homes, God. We ask that you would be our defender. You would be our source of rest. You would be our source of power. Help us to realize that our prayers aren't some mystical thing that goes off in the space, but that they're real powerful because you hear and you answer and you move. God, help us to be a church that values prayer. That when the idea of prayer being absent from our lives happens, God, let that really, really scare us the way Christ valued presence, God. Let us be a people that values presence. Help us to be a church that is powerfully changing this city, powerfully changing our workplaces and our homes and our families because we value you first. We desire to know you better. We desire to seek your face and to declare things over the city. God, we pray for economical change in this city. God, we pray for political change in this city. God, we ask for these things because you're a good father. God, we ask for the other churches in this area to continue to grow and to preach your gospel. God, that you would use the Grove, that you would use Steamtown, that you would use our Father's house, God, to declare your kingdom here, your will be done here as it is in heaven. God, we ask for increase that people would see the hope that you have, that they would stop searching because they have found you, the ultimate treasure. God, let us be a church that sees you as our ultimate treasure. Jesus, give us opportunity this week to treasure you more. God, we ask that you would move. We're so thankful that you have called us, that you have chosen us to be modern day judges in this earth, that we would deliver the broken and we would see justice and righteousness proclaimed, God. Help us to be those people, redeemed Samsons.